If you would open your scriptures to Revelation chapter 21, we are actually wrapping up this series of God's loyal love. And then we will continue to move through the rest of 21 and into 22. Now, Nikolai Berkerin was a Soviet politician and communist theoretician and propagandist. I don't know why I picked some of the words I do up here. Just asking for trouble, right? All right, well, he was one of the early editors of Pravda newspaper. little side note, when uh, I had flown into Moscow to surprise my soon-to-be fiancé, it was a dreary, wet winter day like most days over there that time of the year. And so I knew I was going to kneel on Red Square in front of St. Basil, so I grabbed the Pravda newspaper, and little did I know that that ended up being the last published Pravda newspaper under the communist regime. Now I just wish I would have kept it, but I didn't. But the, the early editor of that is this Nikolai fellow, and in the early 1920s, he was sent from Moscow to Kiev to address a huge anti-God assembly with thousands of people there. And for one hour, he brought his powerful intellect and mind to bear with all the arguments he could muster, attacking and abusing and, and knocking down Christianity, particularly God and Jesus in the Bible. And he was very pleased with his fine work that he had done, and he thought his delivery and his presentation was well, and he was elated at the effect it seemed to have on the congregation or the assembly that was gathered there. Uh, so he decided in a very bold move that wasn't normal in his presentations to actually feel questions from those that had heard him speak. And so one man, at the end of his presentation, there was this kind of eerie silence that crept over the crowd. And one man did rise and asked to speak, except the man didn't stay in his seat. He actually walked up to the front next to Bukharin, turned right beside him, addressed the crowd that was there And he announced what was known at that time as an ancient Easter liturgy that the Russian Orthodox Church practiced anew since they were children. And this happened to be a Russian Orthodox priest. And he stood and he said, Christ is risen. And as one, this whole crowd stood and with one voice like thunder, they responded, he has risen indeed. And that was Bukharin's response. That was the response to Bukharin. Intellectually, you can manifest all kinds of arguments. Uh, You can advance all kinds of discourses and arguments against Christianity, God, and the Bible. But ultimately, he is risen. All arguments fall by the wayside. So, brothers and sisters, like thunder, let's stand and read God's word here. Revelation 21, 1 through 8. And because Christ is risen, this word can be heard loudly, inwardly, in our hearts and in our lives. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. 
for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said also, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly and the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers and the sexually immoral and the sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. O Lord, we do ask that you would illumine and shine on the page from your word and do for us that which we cannot do for ourselves, and that is give eyes to the blind and give hearts to the hard and cold-hearted. And so, O Lord, by the power of your Spirit, sent from the very throne room of the resurrected Christ, Make much of Jesus and grant us eyes to see and hearts to savor him. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we've been looking at God's loyal love through 21, 1 through 8, and we've looked at three different angles, two so far, and one, the last one we're going to look at today. We've looked at the angle of it's a passionate loyal love. We looked at another angle that it's a near or present loyal love. The Old Testament word for loyal love is hesed. Some of you might have heard it. It's a very... Interesting word. It's one of those words. It's like a glacier word. You've got a little bit up on top, but there's this huge depth to it that not even the English or the Hebrew or the Greek language could get their their vocabulary around. So it's one of those words that's really indefinable. It's massively beautiful. It's massively powerful. It's beyond proportion. And so you get words in Scripture, just a whole list of synonyms, and they're used interchangeably. If you have a, uh, a lexicon or whatnot, you can go in and look and see that it's hesed, but it might mean loyal love, it might mean covenant love, it might mean loving kindness, it might mean grace or goodness, it might mean everlasting love, steadfast love. But the bottom line is you cannot fully get your mind and heart around the depths and beauty of its proportion and power. It's beyond us. And even that which is revealed takes your breath away. Hesed. Tremendous word. So I'm using the word loyal love. I'm going to take that synonym to talk about God's hesed. Now, hesed or loyal love is actually the DNA of God's name in the Bible called Yahweh. Now, if you look at your English translations, you're not going to get Yahweh in your translation. What you're going to get is the capital letter LORD, all in caps. That's Yahweh. Now, the DNA of Yahweh, or how God has self-revealed himself in that word, the DNA of it is he has a loyal love for you, a binding love for you. In other words, what he's saying is when that word is used, he's saying, I am the covenant-keeping Lord. And I'm making a covenant with you. Or I am binding myself like cords. 
in a relationship with you that I give myself and pledge myself and oath myself and bond myself to you in grace and in love. Now, theologians throughout church history would refer to this loyal love, this hesed, when Yahweh would reveal himself as a covenant God and he would come and he would bind himself to people who do not deserve to be bound to. They deserve to be cast away, but he would bind himself in loyal love and in grace. And in doing so, covenant theologians would call this the covenant of grace. And what that means is, is that God is binding himself to us in a way that's not based on performance and it's not based on obedience and it's not based on your merit. It's actually based on his loyal love alone, his hesed alone. That's tremendous news. And so when you flip through the scriptures at times in the Old Testament, you'll see these kinds of phrases all the time. I am Yahweh, your God. I am your covenant keeping God. I am the one that binds myself to you in cords and oaths and pledges and promises of loyal love. You'll get phrases like Yahweh is sending you. The one who keeps his covenantal love to you. That's the one that's sending you. You'll get phrases like I Yahweh am your shield and your salvation. I will deliver you. I, Yahweh, will never forsake you. Do you see what that means? If you begin to put hesed into the DNA of Yahweh, that God is saying, I have bound myself with cords of grace and cords of love to people who do not deserve it. And it's not based on your performance, and it's not based on your merit, and it's not based on your work. Now, the responses to this is pretty phenomenal. All I had to do was turn to one page in the Bible, and these are the kind of responses I got. Just quickly. For the sake of sermon preparation, I looked at one page, and here's what I got. God's people would respond to this binding love saying, Yahweh is my shepherd. This tremendous covenant-keeping God who binds himself to me in loyal love shepherds me. On the same page, that was Psalm 23. I just jumped over to Psalm 22. But you, O Yahweh... Do not be far off. This covenant-keeping God is never far off. And that's why David could say, do not be far off. Another page, Psalm 25. To you, O Yahweh, I trust and I lift up my soul. Do you see what happens? Anytime someone actually gets a fresh glimpse at God as Yahweh, the human soul responds in trust, in hope, in revigorated life, and in spiritual nourishment. And so that's what we're doing, and that's what we've been looking at. We've been getting afresh, what does God's loyal love look like in the New Testament? And so first we saw that it's very passionate, and we saw that in verse 2 of 21. I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. You cannot escape the picture here. The picture is of a groom seeing his bride for the first time. The doors bust open and there she is. And the passion in the young man when he sees his bride, it's off the charts. I'm a pastor. I see it all the time. I love being there. I mean, I'm like, I got the best seat in the house. 
I'll look at him and I'll look at her and I'll look at them looking at each other. There's nothing like it. Nothing like it. There's nothing like it when I first saw my bride. That passion, it doesn't have to be worked up. That's the description of God's loyal love, Yahweh's loyal love for his people. Passionate. The next one we saw, this other one, is that it's present. We saw this in verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. I mean, how many times can he say it in a different way? I'm with you. I'm near you. That's the point of verse 3. And so God's loyal love is very present. It's very near. So much so that you get verse 4 where he actually reaches up with his own hand and touches you and wipes the tears from your eyes. That's how near and personal and present it is. Okay, so that was our last two weeks. What are we going to do today? Well, what do you want to do today? Well, we're going to look at the last angle. And the last angle is his promise that his present and his passionate, loyal love will be with you no matter what. Okay? We've got an image and a picture of his loyal love, but we need to know that it will be here no no matter what. And that's why last week I ended with a question. Remember, those of you that are tracking this passage, you were with me. We just heard about the presence of God's loyal love, the nearness of his loyal love. But the question that screams off the page is, but how can I count on his nearness now? I mean, how can I count on his presence for me now? Of course, you look at this passage. This is at the end of all things. To make a promise that I'm going to be with you and dwell with you and you'll be my people and it will be the the consummate age and the the supra life and the ultra bliss and that time when you will see him as we saw in Corinthians and you'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye and of course he'll be with me then. And of course everything will be great. And of course there'll be no more tears and pain and misery and sin. But I got to live now. I've got to get up today. And that question is thrown forward, right? What about now? It's now when I'm empty amidst a full house of stuff, right? It's now when I'm full of anger and bitterness because my life is not turning out the way I want it to. It's now when compulsions to sin are leading me away again. It's now when I'm embarrassed to admit that I really don't understand the grace of God and I've gone to church my whole life. It's now. It's now, right? One of my favorite writers for World Magazine, it's a weekly news magazine, is a gal named Andrea Say or Sue. I I, I would like to meet her and ask her how to pronounce that. Someone know? Sue? Thank you very much. Sue, she wrote what was called 
desert experiences in a recent article. And this is what she said. She says, you will hit dry patches in life. You'll wake up one morning and see absolutely nothing to look forward to. Some people bound out of bed and kiss the day smack on the lips. I love that. The other day, I had one of those kind of days, and my wife looked at me like, how long do I have to live with you? I get those looks a lot. Smack on the lips. These have, these have a book to finish writing, a house to finish renovating, but not you. On Sunday morning, you heard a rousing sermon, but it's Monday morning. And as you haul out the recyclables, there's no 20-piece orchestra to lend life drama and transcendence. If Thoreau is right, this describes, quote, the mass of men. Continuing, she says, my hunch is we lose more people to dryness than to certified disasters. Perhaps one man in ten can stay standing in multicolor catastrophe. Only one in 1,000 can stay standing in dryness. End quote. Now, most of you know by now that I love real history. I love real history. I especially love real history about pivotal wars and battles and pivotal people. I like reading stuff like that because the fluff blows away. And all you're left with is firmness, the solid stuff of life, the fluff of like small and selfish conversations and speech and relationships and agendas and pursuits blow away. And the firm stuff of life, stuff like life and death and heaven and hell, the stuff of faith and fear and courage and cowardice, honor and dishonor, truth and lies. Friendship and enemies, hurt and help, love and lust, on and on. That stuff is all that's left. Well, I'm reading a book right now, and it's called The Longest Winter, and it's about, as I mentioned before, a platoon of 18 guys that took the full force brunt of Nazi Germany's massive counterattack offensive in the Battle of the Bulge. So this, this little platoon of 18 guys took one of the foremost frontal assaults right on the chin that they had to hold this rail, well, they had to hold this intersection by which otherwise the tank divisions would just blow right by and do worse damage than they did. They end up being the most decorated platoon in all of World War II. Well, just before they're overrun by sheer superiority of numbers, because it's only 18 of them, the author zooms in into a foxhole of one of these 18 guys. There's two guys in there. One of them's hurt, and he needs lots of help, and his buddy's bandaging him. And they know they're in a very desperate situation. They know how desperate it is. They know that it's basically hopeless. And so at one point, one of them turns to the, the one that's hurt, says, if things get to where you can take off, then take off. And his friend, he says, I guess these guys did survive because they're being quoted. But his friend, he said, his eyes lit up like fire. And fiercely, he turned back to him and he says, we're staying here together. I'm going nowhere. Now, when you get to verse five, I want you to look at it very, very carefully. There's a tenacious fire in God's eyes when he says, verse 5, it's fierce. And he's saying to John, write this down. 
These words are faithful and true. I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying here with you. You've got to feel the force of this. It's actually incredible because what's happening here is that he is saying, you can trust the promise of what I just said. You can trust the promise and all these things I just talked about, a love that's passionate for you and a love that's present and near you. And you can trust it. I promise it to be so. You can trust what I say. Write it down, John. Write it down. These words are faithful and true. And what we're going to see in our rest of our time here is three reasons why you can trust it. Three reasons why that are being pressed into you because we need to know why. You and I come with desert experiences. We come with cataclysmic disasters. We all come with different shapes and sizes into here this morning. And the point that he's trying to get is to make sure you understand the promise that you can trust him, that he's not going anywhere. He's not leaving the foxhole when you're being shot at. And he doesn't just say it with a word that we hear over and over again in the scriptures and we say, yeah, of course I believe these words, they're true. You got to get the fire in his eyes as it lights up with a ferociousness that he's basically telling us, write this down. These words are faithful and true. So let's look at three reasons, shall we? Look at the first reason. The first reason is that the promise is a pledged promise. God's taking an oath here. If you look at 5 again, look at 5b. The one who's seated on the throne, he says, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He's taking an oath stance here. So he's, what he's taking an oath stance about is not just what he just said about making all things new, but what he just said in verses 1 through 5. In fact, some scholars, most scholars say it refers to the whole book that he just wrote in Revelation. So all that he's written in Revelation, he's saying, write it down. These words are faithful and true. You can count on them. He's making an oath stance. He's taking a pledge. He's promising. I mean, it's a sheer promise in which God has given you his word that this will happen. Now, the closest things we have in our culture today is our judicial system. The closest picture we can get is when you walk in as a person is going to give testimony and they're going to give testimony to the things they've seen and heard. And they walk in and what does the witness have to do? Place their left hand on the Bible, raise their right hand and they say, I swear to tell the truth and nothing but the truth. So help me God. Right. That's our modern day equivalent. God is saying and he's pledging at this particular time. Write this down. I am swearing by the greatest thing I can swear by. My own word. Now, in the ancient Near Eastern world, there is even a more vivid picture of what this meant to take an oath stance. It was called cutting a covenant. And what would happen is you'd have two nations or two tribes or even two individuals and they would cut a covenant. And that means that they would they would put forth what were the specifics And what was the criteria? What was the stipulations? What were the things that they were going to commit themselves to be loyal to each side? And they would write them down and then they would take some animals and they would cut the animals in half and split them apart. And then the two parties would walk down the middle between the halved animals. And the symbol was this. May I 
be torn in two like these animals if I do not keep my word. If I do not keep my covenant with you. Do you know what's so stunning about what God is doing here? He is making an oath and there are not two parties involved. It's a one-person pledge. And it's only from God. There are no demands for you to pledge, for you to perform, and for you to work. It is, write this down. These things are faithful and true. This is what I will do. Me. Right? Now, the second reason, if the first is that it's a promised pledge, the second is that it's a purchased promise. So we've got a pledged promise, and now we've got a purchased promise. I want you to look at verse 6a. Look at 6a. And he said to me, it's done. I mean, it's an exclamation point, so I can't get loud on that. It's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. It's done. Now, what's incredible about this is that what's done is the pledge, the promise, the oath, the covenant. It's done. And we're saying, yeah, yeah, I I, I get that. I mean, he's he's pledging. But how can this be? I mean, think about what a promise and a pledge is. It can't be done. By nature, a promise and a pledge is about things to happen in the future. When you take your vows to get married and you pledge and you bring in this covenant relationship and you come in as an oath, for better or for worse, it's always for things that are about to happen in the future. You make a promise and a pledge for things to come in the future. You promise, you give your word that when the future becomes the present, you'll remember the promise and do it. That's the point, right? I mean, if I promise and I pledge to pay your electric bill at the end of the month, it's, it's to be, it's to come. And then when it comes, you come to me and say, you promised and you pledged. And I say, but I have no money, but I have to pay because I promised and I pledged. Now, what's happening here, though, is that there's more taking place than just God's promise based on God's character as if that's not enough. There's something more going on than, and I I don't even want to say this, just. There's something more going on than God saying, I promise, I pledge, I oath, based on my character being faithful to you, that I will do it. There's even something more than that that's happening in this passage. He's saying, it's already done. He's saying that your, my passionate, loyal love for you, My promised near presence for you is already purchased. It's already done. It's already accomplished. The new heavens and the new earth that I'm talking about in this passage, this new life that I'm talking about, it's done. This reality of talking about being thirsty and in need of divine forgiveness and pardon, it's done. But wait a minute, what about this perfection and this righteousness to stand before a holy God? This incredible spiritual treasure, it's done. Well, what about 
What about your powerful presence by your Holy Spirit to actually affect new life in me and change me and help me get on now? It's already done. How can this be? It's beyond a promise. It's a purchased promise. Hmm. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine in a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is done. It's done. Or it's finished. By my cross, and in three days by my resurrection, I will purchase all of God's promises. I will accomplish them. I will secure them. Write this down. These words are faithful and true. It is done. I've done it. That's how solid this is, brothers and sisters. You have no sandcastles here. You have no straw men here. You have the solidness of a son here. So I want you to feel even the greater impact of this. Drop down to verse 7. It says, the one who conquers will have this heritage. Now, some of you are thinking, yeah, yeah, what does that mean? The one who conquers, that sounds like performance to me. That sounds like merit to me. That sounds like I've got to fulfill this end of the deal and live perfectly before God. Now, if we remember, we've already gone over this in Revelation 12. It says that you conquer by the blood of the Lamb. So we know when we read this, that the one who conquers is the one who conquers by way of cross, not by way of performance and perfection in and of themselves. Okay? So we've got to read that into this. And because you conquer by the cross, there's conquering grace for you now in the present to continue to move towards a real faith in God for the rest of your life. That's the point here. But notice, I'm not even focusing on that, so let's keep moving here. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. Now, now this is phenomenal. Do you remember when Jesus was baptized and what happened when he was baptized? Remember, it said that heaven opened up, a dove descended upon him, and a loud voice from heaven said what? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Remember? Now, if you were a Hebrew and you were reading your Bible in one sitting, you know what you would have heard? My word. That's what he said to Adam. And now he's saying it to the perfect Adam. And now here in verse 7, he's saying it of me. Unbelievable. So when God looks at his son, 
and says, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. Because it is a done reality, because of the cross and because of the resurrection, those who trust in Jesus, God says, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. There's not two loves, one to Jesus, and we get the leftovers. It's one love to his sons and daughters, period. Now, our last reason is that the promise is a people-specific promise. Now, let's look at verses 7 and verses 8. Verses 7 and verse 8 are contrasts, are they not? You've got two different kinds of people. In verse 7, you've got a conqueror. In verse 8, you've got a coward. In verse 7, you have a son. In verse 8, you have soiled sinners. The contrasts, what's happening here, is this passage is blowing away all the fluff. It's blowing away all the small talk and the small speech and the small conversations and the selfish interactions and relationships. It's it's blowing away all the fluff and it's leaving you only two great firm realities. Verse 7 and verse 8. You've got two tremendous, solid realities of life. You have the eternal life and the second death. You have heaven and hell. You have glory and gore. You have the sea, the shining, clear, crystal sea of glass, and you have the lake of fire. You have faith and unbelief in these two lists. You have courage and cowardice. You have repentance and the refusal of grace. You have truth and lies, love and lust. I mean, worship and idolatry, perseverance and falling away, delight and despair, the solid stuff of life. Fluff is gone. And what God is calling you to is to enter into verse 7. He's calling you to enter into verse 7 and to be a conqueror and to be a son and a daughter. And don't refuse him. Why would you refuse him? Now, for some of us, this means we need to come into verse 7 for the first time. And for many of us, it means we need to come into verse 7 for the millionth time. Well, how do you do this? Well, we've got to keep reading, right? If we go actually bump up one to verse 6, the end of verse 6, before he actually gets into 7 and 8, he says, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. So what we have here is it's without payment. If you look at the original language, it literally means freely. The way you enter into verse 7 is without payment. The way you enter into verse 7, the text is saying, is freely. How can that be? Is salvation free? Is forgiveness of sin free? Is a perfect righteousness free? Is having the the passionate presence of God's loyal love for you, is it free? Is it? No. No. It's by work. It's by performance. It's by obedience. It's by merit. 
of God's Son. Not ours. His and His alone, which is why it's free to you. When Jesus says it is done, it's done. All you do is believe it. Believe it or refuse it. That's it. So for Christians here, what we need to do is we need to believe it because we need to understand that his loyal love for you is already done. And that his love for you is actually the spring from which all the cool streams of water in your life flow. You don't want to get this backwards. Usually the way we live is we have his love up here on the mountain and we're trying to go upstream, upstream. Oh, if I could just get his love, if I could just get his favor, if I could just get him to smile once on me, my life would shine. And the Bible is telling us, you already have it. Shine. You already have it. Drink it in. In fact, move forward in your life because you have His love, experiencing the power of His love, not to work for it and perform for it, but because you got it. It's faith working, how? Through love. So in other words, the highest motivation and the most powerful stimulus and energy in the Christian life is God's love for you actually being internalized to such an extent that everything you do is because he loves you, not to get his love for you. Okay? The others of us that many of us hear is that we need to enter into this verse 7 for the first time. And we need to trust the work of his son for the first time. And to believe on the Lord Jesus. And become a son and a daughter for the first time. And now swim downstream in that stream of his love for the rest of your life on into eternity. Alright. This ends our look at God's loyal love. We've seen his passion. We've seen its presence or nearness. And now we've seen its promise. Brian Chappell tells of one of his wife's most powerful images from childhood. I love this. She and a neighbor girl were playing in the woods behind their house. And when they were playing, they got off a path and went into the woods. And in going into the woods, they accidentally stepped on a nest of bees. And when they stepped on this nest of bees, instantly a swarm swarmed and started stinging them violently. Now, as girls do and as guys would do, screams instantaneously, spontaneously erupt from their throats, loud and distressed and severe. Cries of pain, cries of help. And then suddenly, his wife said, like Superman, out of nowhere, his dad, her dad, comes crashing through the woods. Jumping over logs hurtling vines and bushes, crashing through the woods. Without stopping, reaches down, grabs one girl with one arm, the other girl with the other, and tears through the woods to get them away from the bee stings. That's it right there. You want a picture of loyal love in action? That's it.
It's a loyal love that's passionate. It's a loyal love that was very near. And it's a loyal love that promises to always be so. What do you do to that? How do you respond to that? You know how you respond? You respond by trusting it. You respond by trusting in a faithful father that really does love you. And feel the security in that. And know he'll come crashing through the woods anytime. And you need to know, too, how do you respond? You should respond with tremendous joy in, the, in your rescuer. And tremendous delight in your rescue. Your rescuer and the rescue should thrill you all the days of your life. It's stunning that he comes crashing through that woods. It's absolutely stunning that he comes for us at all. And then finally, there should instill upon you a holy confidence that you've got new life ahead of you. And you've got the power of his spirit to actually energize that new life in you. That's how we should respond. So my brothers and sisters, God comes crashing into your life through his son. Believe it and live. Amen.